Everyone is on an equal playing field, regardless of your background, regardless of who you are and where you come from. There is not a difference, there is not a hairbreadth difference between sinners. We are all depraved, we are all needy, and we all need Christ. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. And each week it is always such a joy to come to the next portion of Scripture as we look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am overwhelmed each Sunday, each one of these accounts that we look at, because it seems as if each account becomes my favorite the Sunday that we are looking at it until I get into my study and begin looking at the next account, and it becomes my favorite. And this morning, we are going to look at two accounts, but one account in particular in some detail um, that is one of the most amazing accounts in the life of our Lord and the raising of someone from the dead. So let's look at Mark chapter 5 together. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to begin reading in verse 21. And I'm going to read down through verse 43, Mark 5, beginning in verse 21. Let us hear the word of God together. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's blessed word. Please be seated as we ask for his help as we look at these verses together. Our great God, we come before these two wonderful accounts revealing not only your great power, but your great compassion. And Lord, we ask on this day that these words would speak to your people by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very same power that raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and healed this woman is the very same power that is operative in our hearts, that is operative in this assembly when your word is proclaimed. Father, there are many needs in this room. There are many fears and anxieties. There are hearts that are heavy with grief and burdens. Lord, I pray that by your grace and for your glory that this would be an encouraging passage as we have before us the power and authority of Jesus on display once again. So bless us, we pray, as we look at these verses and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two incidents that Mark has recorded for us that we have looked at have showcased his immense power. First we saw Jesus' power over a natural disaster, that is a storm as he's in the boat with the disciples and he calms the wind and the waves. But then we see Jesus' power over supernatural demons as he delivers this man possessed by demons, 6,000 of them, restores him to his right mind and births him into the kingdom of God. Jesus' power over natural disaster, that is the storm, and supernatural demons, that is over the sinister, now takes us to Jesus' power over unstoppable disease, that is sickness in this woman who had this hemorrhage of blood for 12 years and Jesus heals immediately. And this great power over natural disaster, that is the storm, and supernatural demons, the sinister, and unstoppable disease, that is sickness, then takes us to the crescendo, and that is his power over unavoidable death. That is sorrow, the greatest of all sorrows, the loss of a loved one. There is obvious buildup of Jesus' power with this concluding story, as I just read it to you, of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Mark is a wonderful writer. He is not writing as an eyewitness to these events. Peter is his primary source. But clearly, as he puts this material together and he tells these stories, he wants us to see some contrasts. One of the most immediate contrasts is that when Jesus was on the other side of the lake, having restored the demoniac, the people of the Decapolis begged him to leave. And when he crossed in the boat and came to the other side of the shore, 
You see a contrast because the people there are begging him for healing. And in particular, Jairus is begging Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. We also saw that the demoniac lived among the dead and was delivered. But this little girl of Jairus actually became dead and was delivered. If there was marveling at the end of the last account, verse 20 says, everyone marveled at what Jesus had done to the demoniac. At the end of our account in verse 43, it says that they were overcome with amazement. A strong Greek word indicating that the amazement and the marvel was even of more magnificent proportions than what Jesus had done to the demoniac or what Jesus had done to the winds and the waves. But aside from the contrasts are also similarities between the woman healed from the hemorrhage and the raising of Jairus' daughter. And Mark wants us to see these. Both of these stories have females that are healed by the touch of Jesus. Both of these stories have females who are considered unclean. Both of these stories um, refer to the women as daughters. The woman with the bleeding, Jesus calls a daughter. The little girl is called a daughter to Jairus. The woman suffers with 12 years of bleeding. The little girl was 12 years old. Mark wants us to see the similarities of these things because the similarities of these things, at least on a superficial level, help us to see that everyone is on an equal playing field regardless of your background, regardless of who you are and where you come from. There is not a difference. There is not a hairbreadth difference between sinners. We are all depraved. We are all needy. And we all need Christ. On the other hand, there are contrasts between this woman and this little girl. The woman was poor and destitute, while Jairus was a prominent and wealthy citizen. This little girl was a daughter of privilege, whereas the woman was a daughter of non-privilege, destitute and poor. One was rejected from society, the woman because of her uncleanness, the other one was embraced by society. The daughter and her father Jairus, Jairus holding a prominent position in the synagogue. One was shamed due to her uncleanness, the other was honored. Jairus, this famous synagogue official. And so you see that there are contrasts There are differences, and yet in the similarities and in the differences in God's providence, though these two people, the little girl that was raised and the woman who had the bleeding, have very little in common, they do have that one common denominator, and that is that they are needy beggars in need of Jesus' touch. And not only that, but there is faith in both of these stories. Jairus trusted that Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead. This woman trusted with faith that Jesus could heal her without him even knowing who touched him. This is big faith on the part of both of these people. Perhaps up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have not seen such big faith yet. We certainly haven't seen it with the disciples who have very little faith after seeing what Jesus does. They're amazed by it, but yet they come short of confessing him to be the Son of God. But here is the point in all of this. The theme that comes out in both of these stories is the theme of uncleanness. 
When you read the Old Testament, there are various laws indicating the seriousness of being categorized as unclean in the society. One modern-day analogy would be those who are vaccined and those who are not vaccined. Those who wear masks and those who don't wear masks. Those who social distance and those who don't social distance. There is a great divide that is being drawn in shaming those that have done one thing and honoring those that have done another. It was similar in the Jewish society with those who were considered unclean. And yet all of this uncleanness was meant to point to a bigger reality. And that is simply this. Apart from a spiritual touch from the pure Son of God, all of us will be left unclean in our sins. We will forever be outcasts of the kingdom of God, forever shamed in an eternity of darkness, forever in bondage to Satan and in bondage to our sin, separated from the love of God. But the point of these stories is that though... These people were unclean. They had faith in Jesus and they were healed. 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our uncleanness is great, but through faith we can be restored from our uncleanness and sin. That is really the point of these stories. Now, one of the things that Mark does, and to be honest with you, what the other gospel writers do is what is often done with movie productions today. Mark records these two accounts like a split-screen technique that you see in movies. And really, this is not unique to movies. If you read literature, you'll see this in books as well. For example, Mark introduces here a crisis In the life of Jairus, his daughter is not dead yet, but she is sick unto death, and this man begs Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. But then um, the cameras pan to a completely different scene because all of the sudden this woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment and through a period of uh, an exchange that Jesus has with the disciples first and then the woman, you sort of forget that the first scene opened up with the crisis of Jairus and your, your heart is filled with joy at the healing of this woman but then the cameras pan back to an even bigger crisis as messengers come to reveal to Jairus that his daughter has in fact died all of this then takes us to the scene of death where Jesus heals Jairus's daughter from the dead so it's sort of a split screen image that Mark is giving to us. Because of that, I want to deal with these accounts separately. And because Mark begins with Jairus, and that's how the incident begins, I want to focus on Jesus' raising Jairus from the dead. Now, we're going to touch upon Jesus' encounter with the woman bleeding. We've already mentioned her, and we will mention her again. But not until next week will we return to a focus study of that amazing healing. Before us this morning are more important matters in one respect because we are dealing with the subject of death. And here is the reality this morning. Every single one of us are staring death in the eyes. As we look at this passage, death stares us in the face. The Bible is very honest about death. It's appointed unto man to die once and after this the judgment. In Job 18, 14 The Bible refers to death as the king of terrors, indicating the fact no matter who we are, no matter how spiritual we may be, there is a semblance of fear regarding death. 
Psalm 55.4 also speaks about the terrors of death that threaten even the psalmist. Only Jesus can deliver us from death. That's the simple point this morning. Only Jesus can deliver us from physical, spiritual, and eternal death. A vaccine will not deliver you from death, ultimately. A hurricane evacuation will not deliver you from death eternally. A robust workout regimen and good health will not deliver you from death. Science, with all of its advancements and hypotheses, is impotent to deliver you from death. Only Jesus can deliver you from death. The ground is level on the earth. Every person is in need of being delivered from death. And Jesus gives the solution. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 10.10, the words of Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This little girl's resurrection was contingent upon the power of Christ. It was contingent upon the resurrection of Christ. And your resurrection and my resurrection is just like this little girl's resurrection. It's dependent upon the power of Christ, on his own resurrection, on his own ability to give eternal life. Death is the great human equalizer. It doesn't matter how successful you are this morning. It matters not how much money is in your bank account. It matters not what your religious pedigree is and how devoted you are to God. It makes no difference regarding your status in the world, your good health, or your first world advantages. Death makes all of us desperate, just as desperate as Jairus was on the day he begged Jesus to help him. We are all begging dying people in need of the touch of Jesus. And we need to remember that as we walk through this passage. But even as death stares us in our face, the hope of the resurrection does as well. And so as we consider this story that chronicles Jesus' raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, it opens up to us in four gripping scenes. Four gripping scenes. First we see an anxious plea, followed by an assuring peace, and then an announced promise, and that it ends with an amazing power. First of all, note with me in verses 21 through 24, where we see an anxious plea. An anxious plea. We read here in verse 21, that after restoring the demoniac to his right mind, and Jesus being rejected by the citizens of the Decapolis, verse 21 says to us that Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, that is to the western side of the lake, back to Capernaum, his headquarters. And verse 21 goes on to say, and a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea, that is the sea of Galilee. Luke 8.40 tells us that the people welcomed him for they had all been waiting for him. No doubt this crowd was very large and it was welcoming of him, not so much because the crowd recognized him for who he was, the Holy Son of God, but because word had spread regarding his miracles and in particular his calming of the storm. Remember there were other boats with Jesus and the disciples and no doubt some of those boats had made their way back across and told about what Jesus had done. They had heard about the casting out of 6,000 demons into the pigs which spread not only on the eastern side of the lake but word spread as well on the western side of the lake. 
So people are flocking to Jesus. They are looking for Jesus to perform miracles, principally healings. There were likely people raised up on beds being brought to Jesus and all manner of sickness being brought before him. It seems at this point that Jesus' power and popularity was so great that there was a rumor being spread that if you just got in Jesus' presence and just maybe even touched the hem of his garment, you would be made well. That much comes out in the story with the woman who touches the hem of Jesus' garment. There were others present also in this crowd who were curiosity seekers wanting to see Jesus perform miracles. And so they had heard that Jesus had calmed the stormy sea stirred by howling wind a couple of days before. They had heard of him calming the stormy soul stirred by hellish demons the morning after. And so they are crowding around Jesus. This is a theme that Mark brings up throughout his gospel. We saw it in chapter 1 verse 37 where Mark says everyone was looking for Jesus. And in verse 45 of Mark chapter 1 News about him spread so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. He had to go out into desolate places. We read in chapter 3 and verse 9 that Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowds lest they would crush him. These crowds um, could hardly be overestimated in terms of the number of people. But verse 22 introduces to us a man who was so anxious and so desperate that amazingly he fought his way through the crowds to get to Jesus. This was the most desperate day of his entire life. Notice verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, that is Jesus, he fell at his feet. The text here says that his name was Jairus. And it also says he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. There is no doubt in my mind that since Jesus has now crossed back to the western side of the lake, back to Capernaum, back to his headquarters, and uh, as was indicated in chapter 1 of Mark, that Jesus preached in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the fact that this man is um, called here one of the rulers of the synagogue There's no doubt in my mind that this man, Jairus, not only heard of who Jesus was, but heard Jesus preach. And he saw back in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, that Jesus rebuked the, the man with the unclean spirit that occurred in the synagogue. Immediately, verse 23 of Mark 1 says, there was in a synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, He said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. The end of that account in verse 28 says, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I think Jesus not only heard of Jesus, but heard Jesus. I think Jairus not only heard of his miracles, but witnessed his miracles. At a minimum, the casting out of this unclean spirit in the synagogue. But he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. The rulers of the synagogue basically composed an elder board of a particular local assembly. And this man was one of a plurality. It could be that this man was the chief official. Because he's called here the Arcus Sunagogos. The Arcus Sunagogos. That is... One of the rulers, there was one Arcus Sunagogos, 
chief official who had delegated authority by the rest of the elders to basically be in charge of everything that went on in the synagogue. This man would have been the one who would have lined up the guest speakers to teach in the synagogue. This man would have been the one who took care of the maintenance of the building. This man would have been the one who preserved the scrolls and who appointed people to say certain prayers. It could be that Jairus was not just one of the rulers or Arca Sunagogos, but he was the chief ruler, the Arca Sunagogos. He was the one that had gotten in contact with Jesus to teach in his synagogue. And so he was one of anywhere from three to seven rulers who had massive responsibility. I think he probably knew Jesus to some degree. He was a man of respect and prominence in the community. He would have been one who would have rubbed shoulders with the scribes and Pharisees. And I highlight all of that to you because I want you to see his desperation. Anyone who knew the scribes and Pharisees and knew their hatred for Jesus would not want to align themselves with this rebel preacher. This man is desperate. He is anxious. He has reached the end of the rope. He has nowhere else to go. And so after seeing Jesus, notice verse 22 says, he fell at his feet. He falls at his feet just like the demon-possessed man did. And in Matthew's account, Matthew uses the word proskuneo, which is the Greek word for worship. Now, we don't know if this man was worshiping Jesus, but at a minimum, he's giving the highest demonstration of reverence in that society, bowing down on his face before Jesus. This is a posture of humility. It may even indicate the fact that he was a believer in Jesus. Maybe a secret believer before, and that's why he lined him up to be a guest speaker in the synagogue. Maybe now a public believer. We don't really know what's going on exactly in his heart, but what is clear is that he had witnessed enough miracles, he had heard enough miracles, he had been around Jesus enough to know that he was willing to potentially sacrifice even his prominent position as a ruler in the synagogue to get help from Jesus. This was the most anxious moment of his life. Um, I, I point out to you the risk that he took because in Luke chapter 13, we read of a synagogue official, a, a chief official, a ruler of the synagogue who was indignant with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. So most synagogue officials didn't really like Jesus. Why did Jesus have such a prolific ministry of teaching and preaching in so many synagogues throughout Galilee? Because he had to keep moving from one to the next because he, they would kick him out of them. There was great animosity toward Jesus, especially among the rulers of the synagogues, but not this man. And so we see his anxious plea found in verse 23. Notice after falling at his feet, he implored Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Mark doesn't tell us, but... Matthew tells us in a little explanatory note that indicates that he indicates to Jesus he believes that Jesus could raise her from the dead if it got to that. But at this point, she was not dead. She was just sick unto death. This is desperation. And this sort of anxious plea, you can resonate with it, especially if you have children, really marks 
the type of faith that is true faith in picture form. I've walked with many parents immediately after the tragic death of their little girl or in the hours close to the death. And I can tell you there is no hope, there are no words, there is no comfort apart from the gospel, apart from the presence of Jesus. That is the sort of hopeless feeling this man has. He doesn't care who is there. He doesn't care how big the crowd is. He is humbled before the feet of Jesus. There has been nothing like this tragedy in the entirety of this man's life. And it is only the touch of Jesus that can heal this man in his hour of dark desperation. Just as the demon-possessed man runs to Jesus and then begs to be with Jesus, this man runs to Jesus and begs him to heal his little daughter. Now skip down to verse 42 because it tells us a little parenthetical reference here that she was 12 years of age. But back in verse 23, notice the, the language of the father. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. 12 was not really a little girl, especially in that society. That was the age of entrance into motherhood. But this father is so overcome with emotion, this is still his little daughter, his little girl. Luke 8.42 says it was his only daughter, which shows the anxiety of the moment even deeper. But I want to point out that phrase to you. It's the phrase Jairus uses. He says that his little daughter is at the point of death. This reveals the dire situation. It's, it's the Greek eschatos ike. It translates eschatos, which is the word for end. Eschatos is where we get our English word eschatology, which speaks about end times. His little daughter was at the end of her life, on the brink of death. She was knocking at death's door. She is in a moment getting ready to gasp her last. That's why this man comes with such anxiety and desperation. And notice the plea, the anxious plea, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well again. Again, this conveys an awareness not only of Jesus' power, but also of his willing compassion. This man has faith, Jairus does, revealed in that he asks him to do it. Notice he doesn't ask Jesus if he could do it. He just, almost with commanding language, come now and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well again. See, Mark is pointing out not only the fact that Jesus could heal her, that he had powerful ability to do so, but that he would heal her. He had compassionate sensitivity as well. Our God is not merely a sovereign, powerful God. He is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace and sensitivity to whatever your needs may be. And that comes on display here. And amazingly, in the midst of all the noisiness and the pushiness, you can imagine the sights and the sounds. Jesus actually heard this one man's voice. It's amazing. Notice verse 24. It says, and he went with him. That is, Jesus went with him. Not only did he hear the request, but he is agreeable to go. And so Jesus heads with Jairus 
to his house through the streets of Capernaum. And verse 24 says, notice it, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now this is something we need to take notice of. They thronged about him. Surely this man was relieved that Jesus was agreeable to go. But the moment is still filled with anxiety because the crowd is growing. And the crowd is growing into a frenzy because they are seeing Jesus move. They're not going to let him go. They're moving with Jesus. And so now this man finds himself in the traffic jam of his life, stalled. Stalling in his mind Jesus' ability to get to his daughter in a speedy fashion. And yet all of this has a sovereign and glorious purpose because we read here there is a woman in the crowd who also has a great need and she begins to take advantage of the chaotic scene by hiding behind other people just so she can touch the hem of Jesus' robe. Notice with me in verse 25, there was a woman who had had discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse And she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. This is a sly woman. This is a woman who understands that desperate times call for desperate measures. She is unclean. She cannot be around other people, so she hides. And she simply wants healed. She has faith as well. And verse 29 says, Immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now that's the woman. She's in her own world, but you can imagine Jairus at this point, right? Standing around, maybe tears filling his eyes, anxiety shaking as he sees this exchange that now occurs between Jesus and the crowds and the disciples. This thing just keeps growing longer and longer and longer. Time is slipping away as we speak. Verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now this whole movement has come to a standstill. His disciples then begin to talk back to him. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? So there is this exchange. Mark isn't giving all of the words here, but this is perhaps even somewhat of a lengthy exchange. And Jesus looks around, verse 32, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, verse 33, came in fear and trembling. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now again, this is abbreviated. She told him the whole truth. Women like to talk. This woman liked to talk. I mean, she is telling him everything. Maybe her whole life story, where she came from, what her motives were. She's coming clean with the reality that she simply wanted to be healed by Jesus. So he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let us not forget that this whole time, Jairus is thinking to himself, can we please get on with where we are going? Time is of the essence. Not only that, but there's an interesting word here in verse 24. It says that the crowd thronged about him. Soon, thlibbo is the Greek word. It's the word that is used back in chapter 3 in verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Why? Lest they crush him. Soon, thlibbo. This is an anxious moment. 
Not only is Jairus' daughter closer to death than she was before he came to Jesus and he agreed to go, but now this man's life is in jeopardy. Jesus' life is in jeopardy from a human standpoint because of the thronging, crushing crowd. An anxious moment. And it's important to read our Bibles very slowly because verse 23 also uses a verb that interests me greatly. Skip back to verse 23. He says, come and lay your hands on her, that is my daughter, Jairus says, so that she may be made well and live. That phrase translated may be made well can be translated as healed, but is the Greek word sozo, sozo. And that's the same Greek word that is used in the Bible to speak about the salvation of God. It's used again in verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Sozo, the same word that Jairus uses, the woman uses. And in verse 34, he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Sozo. Jairus uses sozo. The woman uses sozo. Jesus uses sozo. Do you think Mark is trying to make a point? And here is the point. These healings have double meanings. All of the miracle events of Christ are meant to serve as parables of what he really came to do, and that is not merely physically deliver people, but spiritually deliver them. Just as the incarnate Jesus, or pre-incarnate Jesus, brought the waters to order at creation, and just as the incarnate Jesus restored the troubled sea back to order, just as the pre-incarnate Jesus had all of the angels before they were fallen submit to him, and the incarnate Jesus restoring this troubled soul with all these demons and restoring these demons back in subjection to himself, so now this pre-incarnate Jesus who created life in his pre-incarnate state is going to have mastery to bring life out of death in his incarnate state. Of course, Jairus doesn't know that because, as far as he knows, his daughter is still alive. That is, at least until the messengers come to report the bad news. As Jesus is speaking with the joy-filled woman, having just healed her, the story takes a tragic turn for Jairus. His worst fears are realized, and yet Jesus offers hope even in the midst of this. We move to the second gripping scene from an anxious plea Verses 21 through 24, now to an assuring peace. Verses 35 and 36, and I just want to tell you that even in your most dark and desperate moments of tragedy, there is a peace that Jesus and only Jesus can provide. And that is what comes as we see here. Verse 35, bad news gone to worse while he was still speaking. That is Jesus. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Now these messengers could have been friends. They could have been relatives, perhaps servants, because Jairus was a wealthy man. But what needs to be pointed out is their attitude. Notice how they convey this news. It's the exact opposite of Jairus. They clearly lack faith. They say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Cynical. Insensitive. Lacking faith. Why trouble 
the teacher. They don't believe he's a miracle worker. They're not there with the crowds. They're back at the house and come to tell him that Jairus' daughter is dead. These are not true believers. They like faith. In contrast to Jairus, they're rather insensitive. They're basically telling him, look, Jairus, your harebrained idea that Jesus could do something was a royal waste of time. But almost as soon as the flame of Jairus' hope was extinguished, notice how it is lit again by Jesus' peaceful, reassuring words. I love this. One of the most tender verses in all of the Bible, verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. I don't know, but I like to imagine Jesus whispering this to Jairus. Don't worry about what the crowds say. Have faith. In fact, the Greek here says he overheard what they said, which is a Greek word that uh, it's parakousos. It has the idea of ignoring or dismissing. It conveys a refusal to listen to something on account of its immediate dismissal. Jesus heard exactly what was said. Maybe someone at some point has made a rude remark in a crowd of people and you choose to ignore it and not even address it to send a message. And the message you're sending is not that you didn't hear it with your physical ears, but that you would not acknowledge what they said because what they said was rude, inappropriate, insensitive, whatever. It's exactly what Jesus does here. And he's telling Jairus to ignore the naysayers. Do not fear, only believe. And and you can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, believe is in the present tense. So what Jesus is telling Jairus is, do not fear, only keep believing. Keep having hope. Do not give up in your faith. Luke 8.50 says Jesus added, keep believing and she will be made well. So there were some reassuring words of peace that Jesus gives Jairus. Jesus was, of course, not denying the daughter was dead. He was only reassuring Jairus that in the end, everything would be okay. Why is that? Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. I think there's an indication here that Jairus, and as I will show you in a moment, even his daughter were part of the elect people of God. But I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1 for a moment because we need to sort of pause in our story here to really focus on some theology and some prophecy. This is Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1. Speaking about God, verse 77 says that um, knowledge of salvation will come to people the people of God, for the forgiveness of their sins. And notice this language, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I really believe that this prophecy is being fulfilled literally by Jesus 
He's in the darkness of the night with the storm. He arises on the beach that next morning with enough light, with the darkness of demons surrounding him and the light of his power and the light of his gospel is put on full display. He crosses the lake and he meets a man who is literally walking in the valley of the shadow of death and Jesus gives the gospel promise of light and hope. Do not fear. Keep believing. And not only that, but he is literally walking with Jairus to his house as Jairus walks through the valley of the shadow of death. What does all of this teach us? It teaches us simply this. Man's despair and weakness is always an opportunity for God's display and power. Don't ever forget that. Your despair and weakness is always an opportunity for God's display and power. Your greatest times of trial will be the moments you feel the closest to Jesus. God designed it that way. And don't miss the fact that it's not that Jairus doesn't have faith. Jesus is saying to Jairus, you came to me believing I could heal your daughter for a disease. Now will you keep believing me that I can raise her from the dead? Salvation is asking God to do the impossible, to raise us from our deadness and sins and trespasses. And you may think to yourself this morning, I'm too bad to be forgiven. I'm too bad to be changed. And I want you to know that Jesus raises dead people. Those are the only types of people he raises. Those are the only types of people that he forgives are those dead and their trespasses and sins. And so Jesus walks with Jairus and all of his doubts all the way to the house Perhaps his faith is weak, but not only would the girl be elevated from death, but Jairus would learn through the pain and be elevated from his despair. Jesus promises him that here in verse 36, do not fear, but keep believing. God is going to reward Jairus for his faith, and he's going to grow in his faith through this time of trial. As one commentator says, when the need was highest, Help was nighest. And that is the story of God's people throughout time. The psalmist says, and your fathers, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. Abraham, Moses, David, all filled with immensely trial-filled lives. The apostle Paul. And in the midst of all of that, they kept believing. I just want to ask you this morning, What are you facing in life right now? What sort of crisis do you find yourself in? What sort of anxiety and fear overcomes you? Do you believe that as a Christian all will be made well in the end? That's really the point of the story. Do you believe that Jesus is with you? Do you still have that hope? Do you believe in the freedom that Jesus provides or are you overcome with fear? Do you live with peace or do you live with anxiety? Jesus overcomes death in this story. And if Jesus overcomes death, then what could he possibly be unable to overcome? He is telling all of us this morning through his word exactly what Jesus told Jairus in verse 36. Do not fear, but only believe. Because fear is the exact opposite of faith or believing. He holds us He's with us. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. The light of the gospel gives us hope even in our darkest moments. 
We are to listen to his voice, not the naysayers, not the doubters. But just as Jesus didn't have time to listen to the doubters, he also didn't have time to be in their presence. We move now to the third gripping scene. We move from an anxious plea, an anxious plea of Jairus, to an assuring peace of Jesus, now to an announced promise, an announced promise of joy in verses 37 through 40. Jesus has already whispered to Jairus the promise of peace, that all would be made well, but now Jesus dramatically makes another announcement publicly. Notice verse 37. It says, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, Mark is fast-forwarding here. They've already gotten to the house because Luke 8.51 clarifies what's going on. Luke tells us when he came to the house, that is Jesus, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. So that's what is happening. And why is it that Jesus uh, only allows Peter and James and John, the brother of James, to go with him? Well, I think there's really simply four reasons for this. Number one, Peter, James, and John were part of the inner circle. We spent a lot of time speaking about the disciples. They're part of the inner circle. They're privy to things the other disciples are not privy to. Each one of these three men are leaders of the rest of the disciples. Secondly, I think Jesus does this as a judgment on the doubters who have no faith. He's not going to reward their faith. They doubted he could do anything, and so he tells them, "Um, you're not invited to see what I'm getting ready to do. Third, I think Jesus does this uh, out of proper decorum for the family's privacy. And fourth, and perhaps most importantly, the Bible's principle established in the Old Testament that two or three witnesses are necessary to prove the validity of something I think applies here. Deuteronomy 19.15, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Even Jesus says in John 8.17, in your law it is written that one, or that the testimony of two people is true. You have this principle being brought up in the passage on church discipline in Matthew 18 but if he does not listen the sinner take one or two others among you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses first Timothy 2:19 says don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses over and over and over again the principle of the Bible is that there needs to be two or three witnesses those examples are all in the negative here it's for the positive that we have three witnesses Because remember, Mark is not an eyewitness to this event. But Peter was. Peter saw it. James saw it. John saw it. Because resurrection miracles are few and far between in Scripture, therefore apostolic testimony is necessary. And so Jesus, for all of these reasons, goes into the house with Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and the parents of this child. So verse 38 tells us what happens once inside the house. Notice your Bibles. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now this was, for this time, normal and customary. Given the prominence of Jairus as a synagogue official, I think the lamentation was perhaps even more so over the top. These people that are weeping and wailing, as verse 38 says, are not the relatives and friends. These are the professional mourners. These are those hired by the family and the Jewish society to conduct the funeral. The mourners were part of a professional guild. 
This was part of the warp and woof of the society to such a degree that one um, ancient Jewish source said that even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman in the house and then following the family to the grave, clapping their hands together and wailing, haunting laments. And that's exactly what was happening here. We don't know how much time elapsed between the time that Jairus came to see Jesus. He got caught in the traffic jam and word came to him that his daughter was dead. And now this funeral. But enough time had elapsed that now the family, it was obvious she was dead. They're ready to put her in the grave. And because Jairus is a prominent official of the synagogue, he and his family have access to the greatest weepers and wailers of the time. Women who could make shrill noises, along with flute players, who played, by the way, dissonant sounds to create a melancholy atmosphere. Matthew brings that out in Matthew 9 in his account. The point to see is this scene is chaotic. The shrieking of emotional women with no restraint. And not only that, but there were other things that accompanied grieving at a funeral in the ancient Jewish culture. For example, there were 39 methods on how one could rent their clothes. And so you have this dramatic, chaotic scene really putting on a show for Jairus. He's the synagogue official, pulling out all the stops, gathering the loudest, shrieking women they could find, multiple flute players. Jairus was a man of great wealth. The scene was chaotic, clothes ripping, women screaming, people crying. I understand a little bit about this because when I pastor just across my home state of West Virginia. I pastored across the border in the state of Kentucky in the hills of eastern Kentucky and I was introduced to their custom at funerals which was different than anything that I had ever seen. It had a lot of weeping and wailing and a lot of lamentation. I remember one particular time I went to a funeral of uh, a friend of one of my deacons and I wasn't speaking there but I went just to support him and when I got there he introduced me. I think it was to the mother of the person who had died and she was very normal acting and even conversant with me and seemed to be fine. The moment the funeral started, she began getting up screaming and wailing as the preacher was preaching, laying on the casket, wailing, moaning, all sorts of different things. And uh, in that culture, it would go on for hours, uh, even a whole week. A funeral would last multiple nights. And if I was asked to preach a funeral at a funeral home, I would have to preach two or three times. It was a week-long thing. And then the final service was three to four hours, and it was this great crescendo of weeping and wailing. I had never seen anything like it in my life, and that's why I tried to do funerals at the church. That way it could be somber and a little quieter and a little less chaotic. That's sort of the scene, a chaotic atmosphere, and Jesus sees right through what is going on. He walks in, verse 39, when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, I don't think that he's targeting the family here. I think he's targeting the professional mourners. And I don't think he was quite as aggressive as he was in the temple when he chased out the money changers, but that is somewhat at least reminiscent of that event. This is a rebuke because... Notice how their wailing turns to laughing. Their mourning turns to mockery. Verse 40 says, they laughed at him. 
Luke 8.52 says that Jesus told the mourners to stop weeping and he told them to leave. It's hard to recapture the moment. But here you have people that are putting on a show, right? Weeping and wailing, mourning, mourning turning to mocking. Shame is now filling the room. And the loud noises of the weeping and the wailing and the flute playing turns quiet as Jesus with an authoritative word tells everyone to leave. And now with them gone, he gets to work. Verse 40, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, those who were with him and went in where the child was. Back in verse 39, when Jesus said the child is not dead but sleeping, this wasn't a a denial of the fact that she had in fact died. They, of course, misunderstood him since Jesus was using sleeping as a metaphor for death. And that's important to recognize here. Jesus was telling them that death did not have the final say. Scripture commonly refers to death as sleeping because death is not final for the Christian. The body sleeps in death for those who perish before the final resurrection, but the soul is with Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body because to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You're obviously familiar with the great resurrection passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It's a metaphor for death, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died, the point is, he will resurrect from the grave. 2 Peter 3, 4 says that the fathers fell asleep. That is to say, Their bodies were asleep, but not their soul. They went to be with Jesus. Jesus used the same wording when Lazarus had died. He said he was sleeping. Because real death, listen to this, real death is separation of the soul from God, not the body from the soul. And in this sense, her body was simply asleep. Jesus would bring her back to life again. And he does do that. But what a roller coaster day this had been for Jairus. I imagine him looking out the window earlier that day, thinking all hope was lost, only to hear a frenzied crowd on the beach. He leaves his house, he runs through the crowd, pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter, and then the crisis of the traffic jam, and the message coming that his daughter was dead, hope all gone again, then the reassuring words of Jesus, do not fear, only believe, He has hope again, but then as he walks to the house and he hears the sounds of the funeral, his heart sinks again. Reality begins to sink in. But then Jesus clears out the room. The man, Jairus, his wife, wait patiently to see if Jesus could do what he said he could do and would do what he said he promised. I mean, the drama is almost unbearable. This man had to be a nervous wreck. But we move from an anxious plea and an assuring peace and an announced promise that Jesus would raise this sleeping girl who was dead now to an amazing power. Verses 41 through 43. Notice verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. He touched her. She was considered unclean because she was dead, right? 
Jesus took that uncleanness ceremonially upon him. The woman was unclean that he healed with blood. The little girl is unclean. Now Mark is the only gospel writer, and we'll come back to that point in a moment, but Mark is the only gospel writer who uh, records the Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. He translates it because he's writing to majority Greek people who don't know Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. From the time of the Babylonian exile on, Aramaic was the common language for Jews. That would have been the main language of Jesus. That would have been the main language in which Jesus preached. He knew Hebrew, but most Jews didn't know Hebrew. Maybe if you lived in and around Jerusalem, you might know a little bit of it. Um, But Jesus was bilingual. The disciples were bilingual, maybe even trilingual, knowing Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And so Mark gives this little Aramaic expression, Talitha Kumi. And I think he does it because Jesus is speaking the language of this little girl. And he calls her here, notice, little girl. That literally means in the Greek, youth or little lamb. It's a term of endearment. We already saw that she was 12 years old. Why does he call her little girl or little lamb? I think it might be because he was indicating the fact that she was one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, one of the elect. Second Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. I like to believe that this synagogue official was a believer in Jesus at some point, believed in the identity of Jesus, and was raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that when she heard Talitha Kumi, she heard the voice of her master and she rose. Jesus spoke in the little girl's own language to be understood, and I just want to say that even children can hear the voice of Jesus. If a child is one of Jesus's, then they can listen to expository preaching and learn. And parents are to teach their children theology. They are to expect that God's elect children will be eager to learn and hear the voice of Jesus. Jesus in his word conveys truth in language that even a child can understand. But with authority, notice Jesus says, I say to you, arise. I say to you, arise. This is the incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ at creation brought life out of the immeasurable potential of his creativity But on this day, he brought life out of the incalculable pessimism of death and decay. At his command, sinners are raised from the dead. At his command, he can raise physical life. And this physical raising is a picture of spiritual raising, as we've said before. And as verse 42 indicates, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement just as quickly as Jesus told her to rise she rose there was no rehab no recovery period and just as immediate as the healing was and the walking was restoring her back to everything she was before so was the amazement this time the end of the account unlike the last account that says the people simply marveled this says they were immediately overcome with amazement in verse 42 and why not the widow of Nain's son was raised from the dead Lazarus was raised from the dead and now this little girl they had seen something that few people had ever seen in the history of the world they were overcome with amazement that is an understatement because um, the word that is used here is existami which literally means to be out of one's mind it means that this was mind-blowing 
soul-blowing moment in time in which their whole lives were changed at what Jesus had done. Powerful, amazing miracle. Up to this point, the most amazing miracle Jesus has yet to perform, including restoring the demoniac. And then we read in verse 43 that he strictly charged them, in spite of this amazing power, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now this is critical to understanding the point of this story. This is not just a story to make you have warm feelings about a man whose daughter was raised from the dead. This isn't a story to simply evoke emotionalism within you. It is to remind you of the power of God. He strictly charges them not to tell anyone. Why was this? Well, here is why. Jesus' popularity is growing. The crowds are already becoming a crushing throng of people. Jesus operated according to his father's timetable. From a human standpoint, he could not afford to die a premature death. He had to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. But even more to the point of why Jesus didn't want them saying anything about this goes back to chapter 1 and verse 38. Turn back there with me. We've alluded to it a number of times, but remember the disciples come to Jesus in verse 37 and they say, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, so what? Everyone is looking for me. Everyone does not set my agenda. Verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And verse 39 says, he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus came to preach the gospel. That is principally what he came to do. He did not come to principally be a miracle worker. All of those miracles were meant to be signs pointing to what he could spiritually do to deliver people. And if he was consumed with physically delivering people all the time, which would have been physically exhausting, dealing with all the people, dealing with all the ailments, dealing with all the emotions, he wouldn't have time to preach. And if he didn't have time to preach, how in the world would they hear the gospel and be spiritually delivered? So he says, don't tell anyone. In fact, if they would have went and told everyone, every cemetery in town would be inviting Jesus to raise the dead. It would be a circus. Jesus would preach. This little miracle is a big miracle. The miracle of the little girl's resurrection was not an end in and of itself, but a means to an end. It meant to point forward to Christ's resurrection and to your resurrection and the hope of my resurrection. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. There is a verse here that really crystallizes this account for us. Romans 8 verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus raises this little girl's life to remind us of our hope of the resurrection, right? That's the point of the story. I told you at the beginning that the theme of this was uncleanness. Jesus had to touch this unclean, dead body to perform this miracle. You say, how in the world did that not make him unclean? Simple answer. He's the pure, holy son of God. As soon as he touched that girl, it's not that her uncleanness went into him. His purity went into her. That's number one. 
You say, then why did he break the law by touching an unclean body? He didn't touch, didn't break the law by touching an unclean body any more than he was admitting his sin when he was baptized by John. Remember, in, in, the, in the Jordan, John said, I, I'm not going to baptize you. And Jesus says, you must baptize me. Because Jesus was identifying with sinners. He wanted that same water that washed over those sinners, that same dirty river water to wash over him because he was identifying with sinners. He wasn't actually in need of baptism. He wasn't in need of cleansing. He's identifying with sinners. And here, Jesus is identifying with an unclean dead body, an unclean woman who had been bleeding for 12 years because simply this, Jesus is our substitute. He was declared unclean for us. He wasn't really unclean. He wasn't really a sinner. But he took our sin upon him. And we're not really righteous. We're declared righteous. Double imputation. This little girl was raised. Remember in the story, the mourners became mockers, didn't they? The mourners became mockers and laughed at Jesus. But I want you to know that on the final day, the mockers will become mourners if they have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. There is no hope of salvation apart from lying prostrate before the Lord Jesus Christ and begging for mercy and forgiveness and salvation. John tells us that he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They'll wail and weep. They will mourn because they mocked him in this lifetime. Don't mock Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus. Bow to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins to have resurrection life. And then there's one additional point for us this morning. Did you notice in this account how Jesus went the extra mile in serving others? He didn't merely raise this little girl from the dead. I mean, that would have been enough, right? No one else could do that. But Jesus goes beyond that. Verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. That sounds like such a minor detail, but it reveals to us the compassion and care of Jesus Christ. Give her something to eat. I've spiritually raised her. Now you physically serve her and care for her. You know, that's what the church should do. The church should go her extra mile in serving others. There is the office of deacon that was established by the apostles in Acts chapter 6. Deacons were appointed to support elders whose chief role is the spiritual needs of the congregation. Congregate can't raise the dead. But congregant members can serve others in their time of physical neediness. And not only that, but in order to be able to serve others in their time of physical neediness, we need to be aware of what those needs are. Throughout my time in the ministry, throughout the years, there have been those who have complained about the fact that people in the church don't serve them. And when I begin to research that, I oftentimes find those are the people that are so disconnected from the church that no one knows what their needs are. You can't serve those whose needs you're not aware of or the depth of those needs. And it's also a reminder to us that we need to have humility. Like Jairus, like this woman, if we have a need, if we have a prayer request, we must make it publicly known because the church is not a place for prideful complainers, but only needy seekers of Jesus 
who need his reassuring words and touch. I pray that this morning his word has spoken to you. I pray that your faith has been strengthened because you have seen before your eyes and you have heard from the word of God Jesus' power over disaster, the storm, Jesus' power over demons, the sinister, Jesus' power over disease, sickness, Jesus' power over death, the greatest sorrow that we will ever face. Jesus cannot be defeated. He's undefeated. He is marked by death-defying power. And so we implore you to turn to him today to be delivered from death and to receive eternal life. Let us bow to him in prayer. Our Lord God, we come before you, Lord, with a great sense of seriousness because of this wonderful account of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's an account that shows to us, Lord, your unparalleled power. It's also an account that reveals to us your compassion and your care. It encourages us to care and to love others in the body of Christ. We're to care for spiritual and physical needs, Lord, just as King Jesus did. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection, which is what this account reminds us of. And Lord, we pray that all sinners here today would bow the knee to Jesus, bring your elect to yourself. Lord, as we sing this song of benediction, we pray that we would sing it from our heart, being reminded of your coming. But even, um, Lord, if you don't come for another 1,000 years, we know that your presence is with us, walking with us, and that is our great comfort and our great assurance. So thank you for these words of hope from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.